Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed the podcast where we speak with all kinds of entrepreneurs doing amazing things in business and beyond. Support for E2 is brought to listeners in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, or incorporate your business, and even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co. That's O-W-N-R.co. Don't forget to use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. And our newer sponsor, Iristel, offering better Canadian telecom solutions. With Iristel Business Solutions, companies can streamline their communications to reduce complexity and give employees better resources. Visit iristel.com slash solutions for more information. That's I-R-I-S-T-E-L dot com slash solutions for more. So in this episode, I speak with Amy Shaw. Amy is the co-founder and CEO of PikaPack. And the former Procter & Gamble marketer, now turned entrepreneur, is committed to the education space, helping children become successful, compassionate, and caring citizens. Pick-a-pack is also backed by Silicon Valley-based accelerator Imagine K-12, which is the edtech vertical of Y Combinator. In this one, Amy and I talk about the evolving education space, what skills are critically important for kids as they learn and grow. We also get into funding strategies, what investors tend to look for in a team, and of course, Amy's experience down in Silicon Valley. So without delay, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Amy Shaw. When we started, we did see a potential to digitize and to um, develop technology. We just didn't know exactly how that would come up, come about. So what we decided is that we wanted to find the quickest, easiest way to develop something to be in market within a few months to validate whether our content and what we're developing had some merit. We decided that Kickstarter would be a great way because it was launching in Canada at the time to see if there was some interest in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. So we actually put that uh, Kickstarter campaign together without a final product. We just kind of mocked everything up and then we launched it and we ended up you know, hitting our funding target within three days and we said, okay, we got to build a product now for real. Wow. And so... We, we gave ourselves some time in there, we, you know, to be realistic that we could deliver, and it was behind holidays, so it drove some urgency, and um, our initial batch of product got out within, you know, a few, you know, weeks after that um, campaign closed, and then in terms of our next batch, we started growing, so we had this initial kind of revenue and um, kind of understanding of, like, what worked, what didn't work from the first kind of batch, and then we started doing this monthly subscription um, of product. And, and so we were kind of constantly developing new content and, and kind of growing our user base. Again, because we were really big on validation, we wanted to kind of 
kind of like how like in business theory you'd call it small wins or you know lean you know lean um, methodology. It's like you know having those small kind of testable validation kind of points. We said, okay, well, how can we also get other types of validation? And what seemed natural and everyone kept on referring us to were these like accelerator programs and I don't know, like these competitions. And so we, I think, like spent an afternoon, applied for a few, and we ended up getting interviewed for two. One gave us a, an offer pretty quickly, and then the other one was in Silicon Valley, which is called Imagine K12 and now part of Y Combinator. And so I remember it was like we were trying to like make decisions really quickly. And so they luckily kind of gave us an interview really quickly. So I remember the next day I flew down to San Francisco. And then the next day after that I interviewed. And then a few hours later um, we got in. And so even though it was like not necessarily validation from customers, it was validation from you know some third party people who had evaluated different businesses. All of a sudden we had some capital and some, you know, kind of stamp of approval from these kind of accelerator programs. What was the application process like and how stressful was it? And for those listeners that might be interested in taking their business to an Imagine K-12 or Y Combinator, what advice could you give? Um, that's a good question. I, I think things have become much more competitive. So I, I don't want to say it was easy, but at the time... I think I think at the end of the day, part of the reason we got in was a combination of our founding team having such great history and compatibility. My co-founder, like I've known her since I was eight and nine, and she, I'm sorry, I was nine and she was eight. Um, we had you know volunteered together, we had lived together, we had traveled together, and so there's a lot of trust and um, belief in what we were doing together and. We had a really clear vision to make a difference in the education space, yet we came from the business side. So you can also see that we had the lens of how are we going to actually build a business at the end of the day. So I think that founding team in any application, be it an accelerator or um, at an early stage in a business, like that founding team can make a huge difference to show that you have know-how, you have that passion that you're going to persevere through all the highs and lows of entrepreneurship. And then also that you have history. So especially for Y Combinator and Imagine K-12, like they, they definitely prefer teams that have that history between the founders. When you applied and were accepted, were you still going B2C with this model or had you pivoted by this point into B2B? And let's, I guess, go back and also give uh, listeners a brief overview of what Pack looks like today versus what it looked like then. Sure. So today, Pack is a digital um, platform that serves teachers, students, and parents in learning uh, social-emotional learning skills. So things like empathy, self-regulation, how do you build collaboration skills. And we do, do this through um, curriculum resources for teachers, you know, resources for parents, and then we have a personalized learning experience for students to kind of gamify that experience and collect data about how students are learning these skills. And when we first started off, we were very different. Um, we were actually a, if you've heard of like Birchbox or any of these monthly subscription boxes, we were an educational kind of learning kit for families to teach these skills um, and, and, and drive a love for literacy in the home with families. And so a lot of our content has actually stayed kind of similar in terms of our storylines, um, in terms of our characters and our, and our world that we've built. 
but how we delivered that content has changed dramatically and who we deliver that to initially. So we went from, you know, engaging families directly to now working with school districts with, you know, anywhere between thousands to tens of thousands of students across the uh, U.S. And, and also in some in Canada as well. The education system. So let's talk about the adoption there. So moving to B2B into the education system is a tough one. I see potentially two barriers, one being, you know, obviously money, the education system is a tough one to to crack. And the next being getting your curriculum involved with the core curriculum. So how did you guys get over those two barriers to adoption? And were there other barriers as well? Yeah, education is not an easy necessarily industry to break into. Um, I think once you do have some momentum and reference customers and research, it does become easier over time. Um, I say easier (laughs) with a grain of salt. But yes, I mean, when we first started off, we were developing curriculum while developing technology. And so just building up your library is one of the biggest things in terms of your product. But what we what we did is we actually built our product um, in collaboration with teachers. And so we did over 300 interviews with educators and decision makers and kind of invited them into the product process. And so as we were developing it, we were kind of getting buy-in from some of these folks and a number of those folks ended up becoming our first pilot customers and uh, paid customers in terms of purchasing either at their classroom or school or district level. Um, And then we started doing research. And I think once we started having kind of we call them lighthouse districts, um, where they were really championing our product, they were researching our product, being able to collect data about the impact we were making. And we had these case studies, it became that much easier for us to, you know, reach out to the neighboring districts or in other states close by. And, you know, then at the national level, to talk to folks that, you know, this is a, a truly, you know, validated product that has impact that students like to engage in and that teachers like to use. Do you do this through any hardcover storytelling as well, or is the product purely digital at this point? So we um, initially just started off as only purely digital, and we have our platform for teachers, and then we have a personalized learning game for students. However, um, as we get into younger kind of uh, class grade levels, so for example, preschools or kindergarten, um, the need to supplement with hardcover books is definitely there. And so we've been getting interest from a lot of libraries and um, we've started like self-publishing our books on Amazon. So they're available for anyone, like be it a parent or a school system to purchase. And then we're speaking with publishers as well to bring those to market as well. Who's the target? Like, are you wanting to get this mostly in front of teachers or are you really targeting principals? Oh, we, I mean, we work with educators, principals, district leaders, or school board leaders um, all all across the board. And then we also have parents and homeschoolers who use our product as well as um, they can read our stories. Part of our, our mission is to really drive accessibility and Um, make this available to as many folks. And so our platform has uh, a number of free resources for any of those kind of key stakeholders in the system to access our materials. When you guys didn't have lesson plans created, but you had a vision, were you writing the first versions of the lesson plans yourselves? We were really fortunate to partner um, with George Brown College to kind of be able to develop a lot of our materials and design principles with them. 
and a PhD there in early child education. So that, that's how we got kind of started. And when we were part of Y Combinator or Imagine K-12 um, specifically, we were able to kind of do a series of tests again to see whether we wanted to even pivot into education. So we took we took apart our lessons. Sorry, we took apart our books and we brought the books to the classroom. We had an educator on staff um, by by uh, because we did value the educational aspect of our product, and so she helped us kind of put together a, a quick lesson plan within you know a few days. And then we started testing it and we would see the reaction from the students and it was overwhelmingly positive. That being said, that was in Silicon Valley. So we didn't want to use Silicon Valley as a benchmark. And so we started also doing another test where we just created a whole kind of mini unit on um, the topic of gratitude. And um, that's where we put it out actually to a broader group of educators. We had listed on the site called um, edusense.com. And we thought we'd get to like 50 teachers and that was going to be success for us. And we would test and validate with them. They ended up getting 13,000 educators and homeschoolers download this lesson and a hundred of them to use it and then give us some feedback. And so that gave us this like quick piece of data over, it was like a nine, it was a nine week period um, where we were able to get a whole bunch of data about what the potential was to digitize our content um, what that ability to kind of refer to other um, educators and to parents. And that's where we um, ended up deciding that, you know, we can only probably do one really well, either the physical or this digital product. I mean, we see much more potential to, to pivot into the dig- digital realm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so earlier you mentioned research and data. And <laughs> the stats that I came up with, something like kindergarten students who score high on social emotional skills like empathy are about four times more likely to graduate from college and two times as likely to have a full-time job by the age of 25. What are some of the other big stats that have come out from your research? I mean, that is that research specifically is as of recent from Duke University and Penn State. And I mean, I can go back and like that's, that's those are actually the two stats that we recommend to most mm-hmm. people. The other area to consider is we work with actually some of the most at-risk populations or some of the toughest cities that have experienced a lot of uh, where kids have experienced a lot of traumas and stresses. And so um, for those students who've experienced any kind of, you know, violence um, in their community or something that's happened at home, even um, where it can affect their social emotional learning, things like emotional regulation and um, uh, being able to kind of develop their executive function become really crucial to be able to help them persevere and, and still be successful in their academics. And so as we as you look at the, for example, the U.S. Um, public school system, more than 50 percent of the students are below the poverty line. And so you have some of these concentrations of districts where they're serving communities that, you know, it's not just showing up to school that they may not come to school, you know, uh, fully fed. They may not, um, you know, have all the, uh, their parents may be working like two or three jobs, so they may not have all the support that they, you know, could have received. And so there's all these things, all these factors that could play a role in a child's well-being. And providing social-emotional learning can help them be able to persevere um, um, through, regardless whatever the situation is. And 
what's interesting is that a lot of these children are the most resilient children. And so it's like equipping them with some of the skills to go through all those highs and lows of life. And I think all children need this, but um, it becomes even that much more apparent for the, these children to have these skills. And so it's been great to be able to partner with some of these districts to best design our product to provide equitable access. Um, so for example, we do offer like offline options that teachers can print and send home to families as they don't have access to internet. Be able to, you know, look at how to, how to best support these students in understanding, you know, what they're going through and what they're feeling in that given moment and then how they can manage those different emotions as well. So these skills, self-regulation, teamwork, empathy, I've got two questions for you. One, what do you think was the tipping point that put this on everyone's radar? Because there's like a huge movement. I mean, it's, it's your industry, of course, you know, but for those that aren't so familiar, I mean, there's a big tidal wave coming here. And two, how do you think kids entering the workforce now who say never had this training when they were young could be more, say, self-regulated, empathic, etc.? I think increasingly as we all are using more and more screens and technology and Things are becoming, you know, a lot of skill, a lot of our, you know, job functions are also, if you think about in the next like 20 to 30 years, are going to be uh, changing. And so what the skills that students need to learn now is becoming less and less about specific knowledge because that's all at our fingertips, you know, via the Internet. And it's more about how we use that information, so critical thinking skills or how we work together to build something together, be it in a company or in a school situation or, or whatnot. Um, it will be how we kind of empathize with each other and show respect. It will be how we make good decisions. And so these are all like key kind of aspects of social emotional learning. And dealing with those kind of that variability and being adaptable is going to help those people be more successful um, in a, a rapidly changing kind of uh, workforce and environment. And I think more and more educators are realizing that um, they're already seeing changes in, in kind of the future kind of generations that have been graduating recently. And I think especially with some of the things that have happened, you know, in our communities as well, if you look in the U.S., there's been a lot of increasing number of um, students, especially as they get older, dealing with mental health issues, with suicide, a lot of these kind of risks on the rise that, you know, understanding how we can prepare our youngest learners with these skills so they are resilient, that they are prepared for, you know, the highs and lows of life in general, that um, we'll, we will be more successful, be it in our academics, be it in our lives or in our careers. I think what's really cool about what you guys do uh, in terms of the Pikaback product is you give sort of this, you bridge this gap between um, what kids are learning in school and what they can continue to learn when they leave the classroom. I think it's a great key piece that you allow parents uh, to be privy to what their kids are learning in the classroom. And I think that's often not the case. Can you explain a little bit about how your product does that and what you bring to parents and the value you bring to parents? So we, as, as I mentioned, we interviewed a lot of educators. We also interviewed a number of parents. And uh, we also did another research study with George Brown College. So it's Dr. Kimberly Brazier. And uh, she was really excited about how do we provide really developmentally appropriate learning opportunities for parents to extend and reinforce learning. And she didn't want it to be homework. Homework is not necessarily appropriate for this age level. 
but more so here are opportunities to give context. So what did the child learn in, in class? So we actually summarize everything a teacher has taught in our lessons. Uh, we also provide prompts or kind of quick, kind of playful activities. So it could be something as simple as, today we learned about gratitude, over dinner, ask your child who or what are they most grateful for? Mm -hmm. Have a discussion. Um, or on self-regulation, it could be as simple as uh, we learned about what a calm body looks like in class, at home, play your child's favorite song, dance with them, pause the song, and then with your child, practice what a calm body looks like. All of a sudden, the child has this extension and the parent and the teacher have this common vocabulary. So they're talking about a calm body or gratitude. And so that becomes like something that a child is reinforced but it's really simple and easy for any parent, no matter, you know, what they have in terms of technology or, you know, what's in their home um, or if they're really busy to be able to do some of these um, small kind of prompts and activities. The last area that we thought was really important, and there's a huge amount of research that shows um, the benefits of this is uh, offering that uh, literacy moment at home. And so we've developed original stories to model and teach a lot of these skills and they're used in the classroom. And so what we've done is provided access to parents to easily access these stories and read them to their child at home. That only not only provides like an opportunity to bond over literature, to reinforce some of that language, but also to encourage that uh, kind of family literacy aspect. So encourage that uh, love for reading. And that's really important at a young age for children to have that. And we do that all through email updates, so it's not like a parent has to log into anything. It's kind of like easily accessible on their phone while they're on the go that they can access everything. Do you see any friction from parents that say, actually, I want to keep my kids away from screens, period? Yeah, definitely. So our at-home activities um, initially for parents are actually traditionally mostly offline. We do have the option now to purchase our printed books that they do want to print the book or they want to have the books um, available uh, offline. They could do that. We do know that that is important for many parents, but even our activities in most cases are things that, you know, their prompts, their questions, their kind of play-based activities. So they're not meant to require a lot of the screen time. So the new thing, which is kind of like maybe just just surfacing on our website, so you might have not seen it before. So the new thing that we're offering for students to do both in the class and the home is actually more of a gamified experience. And what's neat about the company and, and how we developed everything, and I mentioned this earlier, our, our characters and our kind of narratives are pretty consistent from the start of the business. And what we did do, if you think about movies like Harry Potter, mm -hmm. uh, we built our own world kind of like that. Um, and so we have our rules to our world. It's called Peekaville. And we have animal and human characters that live together. And we have architecture that's inspired by Gaudi, the Spanish architect. And, and creativity is really, is really encouraged. And everyone has their own talents. And so what we decided to do, um, we wanted to create a more of a engaging, interactive student experience. And what we're um, going to be recently, we've been testing and we'll be launching in, in a, a month's time is a uh, experience where students can actually join this world, become their own Pika Pack character. They can actually check in on how they're feeling. Um, they can read our books. They can play our different social emotional learning games. And what this allows us to do is collect really useful insights around how students are feeling, how they're learning these skills, and how much of their reading of these books 
to be able to help tailor the support um, in the class and the home for the child around learning these skills. So we're pretty excited about that as a kind of an extension to not only provide more of an interactive experience, but also to provide kind of insights and data to the adults in that equation to help um, to help the child in that, that skill development. Totally. And also presents some business ancillary revenue opportunities also. I mean, we talked a little bit about the hardcover books and print potentially. What about, I mean, you're talking about these characters and the narratives. I mean, I see lots of opportunity with things like stuffed animals, uh, mm-hmm. partnerships with people like Spin Master Toys or whatever. Have you guys explored any of that? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it was interesting, even for just from the education side, this has opened up because of the kind of a, and a personalized learning experience. We can go into library systems. We can go into after-school programs, uh, pre-K centers. But then in the consumer side, we've had interest from publishers, from TV production. And how do you can how can you take these assets or these uh, characters in this world and these narratives to bring it to um, potentially an animated series to merchandise. And so we are speaking to a number of partners right now. And it's been exciting to see kind of like all the work that we've done in education and the fact that we have so much reach already is a huge plus for us to kind of start building a presence in um, other sectors of the industry. Are you guys working on stuff for junior high, high school, anything like that? Uh, in terms of the content, not necessarily, um, but we do think some of the tools that we tools we've developed um, can be extended to be used in middle school or potentially high school. Uh, because a lot of our stuff is very narrative focused, so we have our own set of characters, and it's, it's very young feeling. We're talking hedgehogs, for example. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily equate to. Um, high school level or middle school level. Um, but we do think that some of the kind of tools where we're capturing um, kind of insights and data could be maybe more simplified and still be used across like a kindergarten to 12 kind of experience in the future. Yeah, I didn't think, uh, wasn't suggesting Picaville was a target for high school kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe there was some, some sort of a different world for them. In terms of the competition, I've heard of Class Dojo and some of these other players. Who do you consider to be the direct competition for you? Class Dojo is a bit different. Uh, it is more of like a classroom management tool, and they don't necessarily have uh, their uh, huge body of content like we do and the richness of the content that we're doing. And so in terms of like who we see as competitors currently, uh, in terms of most schools, if they're doing something around social emotional learning, they're typically these paper-based programs that are seen as add-ons. And what we've tried to do and what we're different is that we've seamlessly integrated into required curriculum. So things around literacy, language arts, or reading and writing type of skills so that it doesn't become something that a counselor or once in a while gets taught as a nice to have, but something that becomes kind of the fabric of your everyday kind of lesson planning and and programming that we can do it during read aloud time. We can do a writing activity around this. um, And it becomes part of like your general vocabulary and what you're teaching. Um, And so it's, it's very different from um, previous kind of attempts to teaching social emotional learning. And I, I, we think that that's a, you know, a really differentiator, differentiator for us. Okay, so I want to rewind back to uh, the Imagine K-12 stuff. I had some additional questions that I haven't hit on just yet about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you were accepted, my understanding is that you have to actually physically move down to the valley as a prerequisite. Is that right? That is right. So are you still there? 
No. So we, um, so as a Canadian, uh, we did move to Silicon Valley and you can stay for up to six months as a Canadian <laughs> and then you do need a visa. And so I ended up returning back to Toronto and applied for our visa and, you know, that took a few months and we ended up getting our visa. And uh, as we moved back, we actually noticed during that time the amount of momentum and interest uh, around technology and new companies and just the, the landscape changing tremendously. And uh, we were really impressed and kind of uh, on two fronts, both from like a terms of talent, like we found a lot of great folks, um, be it from Waterloo or in the tech space that were excited about what we were building, as well as uh, just in the general ecosystem in terms of funding support and learning how to scale your growth and developing a sales kind of process and um, we ended up making a decision that we'd rather stay in Toronto and build our presence here. And now we have an office at Queen and Spadina, but we initially came back and um, got some space at the DMZ at, within Ryerson University. Mm -hmm. That was a great ecosystem to join and learn from other founders and kind of grow uh, our team there. And they were highly supportive and highly recommended to other companies um, that are starting off because it was a great kind of stepping point to come back to Toronto and be part of a, you know, a system of, I think there's like 70 plus companies there. So we got to learn from the other CEOs. We got to uh, learn about sales process and fundraising and all that kind of stuff. So um, we ended up deciding to stay here. It was much cheaper than San Francisco, I'll be honest. We also, you know, there's a lot of, I think, initiatives that are happening from the government to support entrepreneurs here. So we got to benefit from that as well. So it's been been really great um, being part of the Toronto ecosystem. And um, I'm really happy that we did stay here. For Canadian entrepreneurs wanting to know uh, about resources for funding options, specifically government resources, where did you guys find your information? So the best thing that I would say is whenever I met another founder, um, obviously I want to get to know them for who they are and, and what their business does, but often the best learning came from them. So I would be I would ask them, you know, what are the different ways that you're funding your company? And I'm happy to share my list. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. I think over the years, like I've created this list and I'm happy to share, like I have a blog and I've started listing some of those different resources and links and some spreadsheets that other people put together in terms of different funding and the timelines and the contacts and that kind of stuff. So I'm happy to share that. And I think, you know, the net kind of learning that we can have from other founders can, you know, propel us all forward and we can learn and not make the same mistakes, <laughs> you know, like we can all learn from each other. So I think it's it's been coming from other founders mainly. During the funding process for you guys, what were the three key lessons that you could share with others that are listening? Um, so there was different types of funding that we received. Um, we've been really fortunate to find a lot of mission-oriented angels who really believe in our vision, um, believe in us as a team. Uh, we also have a number of like funds that I've worked with. And then last area has been kind of grant and uh, government funding. Mm -hmm. And across the board, like the main, main thing, especially at an early stage, is really their belief in you as a founder. And so getting your story down um, about why you're doing this and why you're like the best person to do this, um, you know, can be really a big decision um, factor for that funder because they they really need to they're taking a bet on you. 
And they want to know that you're going to persevere, that you're going to work hard at this, that you believe in this long term. And I think we've been really fortunate for people that are funders that they see that they see that we're scrappy, that we're <laughs> excited about what we're building, that we're going to go through the highs and lows and that um, they're, you know, worth, it's worthwhile to take a bet on us. So you mentioned um, the storytelling and the belief the investors need to believe in you as founders. Do you think you guys had an advantage because you and your best friend I don't know if she is your best friend, but you mentioned you had known your your co-founder since you were eight or nine or something like that. Do you think that that was an advantage for you guys? Uh, yeah, I mean, I was saying that before in terms of Imagine K-12, like having history and the fact that like we really work well together and we are truly best friends, that, that was a huge advantage. And I think, you know, people will look at a, a few things, like they'll look at your team and so the founding team and the overall kind of uh, leadership team and how you work together and you have history together that help the product itself. So I think... Our product um, spoke for itself. It was like in terms of quality, in terms of the engagement with students, the traction also matters. And so even at an early stage before we even built our technology, we had all this validation of people signing up for a beta lesson. You know, having 13,000 people download a beta lesson um, before we even launch a product is, you know, very compelling. And we totally. went, you know, further even to like do surveys with those and interviews with those teachers. And so, you know, being data driven around um, showing whatever validation you can was also, I think, really helpful for our early investors. And then I, I'll say one last thing for Canadian entrepreneurs. I think, I think the Canadian landscape is, is you know, even more stringent around validation. And so having, you know, people kind of vouch for you, like we had the support from Mars, like they were one of our first investors, um, you know, from the Imagine K-12 program. Um, we were a fellow of Unreasonable Institute. Like we were, we were part of these different kind of programs and events and, you know, we had people kind of vouching for us and, and that really mattered as well, I think, in terms of our credibility and viability as a company. And so that I think is really helpful. And I think Canadians, especially in funders, um, want to see that other people are at the table um, to to invest in your company. All good stuff. I know we're bumping on t up on time. I do want to ask you this one last question. I know this product, Pikapak, has impacted like a lot of students and changed their lives in a profound way. Can you share a story of a student without obviously breaching confidentiality whose life has changed as a result of using Pikapak? Sure. Actually, one of our first beta customers um, is a really compelling story. Um, so we were working with a school special ed um, educator who had a classroom of students that were all students on the spectrum. And one student who uh, showed up in our classroom within a week of um, starting school had already been transferred twice. So that was his third placement um, within you know, a very short period of time. On top of that, he was um, essentially homeless. So him and his mother were kind of like couch surfing, um, trying to find uh, places to, to live and, and to sleep. And so he came with, you know, a number of challenges and he also couldn't read. And so when she started testing out the program, um, she started with our first book on self-regulation. And the story starts with one of our characters named Leo the Hedgehog. And he's feeling really, really nervous. His palms are sweaty. His heart's beating fast. You know, his head is spinning. And as they read this book, this child was completely engrossed and he could identify with this character. He said, you know, I'm nervous too. 
he's like he was you know nervous about the fact that he couldn't read and he felt embarrassed you know he also didn't know anyone in school and all of a sudden slowly by slowly as he read this book he became so engaged that he he wanted to participate so first it was just turning the covers of the book on the smart board and that was his participation and he felt like part of the community he then you know started uh, rereading the books with his teacher so not necessarily reading it directly but repeating the lines that the teacher would read out loud so he felt like he was part of it and quickly within like you know a four to six period a week period he you know engaged in the lessons he started uh, becoming more involved and this teacher was completely you know amazed at the fact that it kind of helped this child all of a sudden get over the fact that he wasn't alone you know he wasn't the only one feeling these emotions and that it was normal to feel you know be it nervous or sad or any of these emotions they're not good or bad emotions they're just up and down emotions and it's important to talk to someone so talking to his teacher and also his parent at home and and having these conversations and and managing those emotions and so she quickly saw him be go from you know causing problems in the classroom to you know taking a lead and participating in the classroom and for her that was you know great validation to see that you know one of our toughest students was able to connect with this and how much potential it had to impact every child to be able to be you know attentive and productive in class and uh, be able to self-regulate and be empathetic and, you know, be part of um, a classroom community. I think it's amazing. You know, one last comment slash question about that. I think it's incredible how early you're catching these kids and they're able to build this foundation as they mature. And it's super valuable. I think one of the toughest parts is getting parents necessarily to warm up to this idea of becoming more emotional. I mean, we've we've known lots of people i mean i for one have come from a household of of a certain type of parent i know many listeners have parents that don't want to go there like don't want to get emotional don't want to talk about self-regulation gratitude empathy none of those things um how do you think we can get parents to come around definitely and i think it's it's one thing to say, oh, we're going to learn about self-regulation and we're doing a lesson at home. I think that's going to be really hard for most people to digest. But I think uh, narratives and storytelling is such a powerful way to get all people on board. If you think about the power of movies mm-hmm. or books or you know, some of the things that we've grown up with, and at the end of the day, the heart of narratives are often ways to reveal essential truths that are a part of the human kind of nature. And I think um, being able to empathize and and learn about that, um, using stories can be a powerful way to make it approachable for any parent to read along, to be able to see a different perspective, to see how it can affect others. Um, and how they can um, bring that type of learning and that language into their home and to have conversations um, with their child. Um, I think about one of our books around uh, empathy, actually, is about a character who moves from Mexico to Peekaville. Mm. And Peekaville is supposed to be the greatest place ever. Um, and so, you know, all the students in the, in the classroom are like, well, why are you sad? Like, how can you be sad by being in Peekaville? And they had to learn to be empathetic and see it from her perspective and that she would be sad because she's missing her friends. And 
that's a you know really timely topic right now as you know more and more people are migrating and immigrating and you know there is a lot of change in in the world and you know seeing that story and how it affects you know affects that main character and and how you kind of can resolve that is such a powerful way to start talking about that um be it for the person who's you know, moving to a new country or the person in the community that is accepting new, you know, migrants or people in their new community. And I think um, having those conversations, it's a great way to use, be it our text or so many other, you know, great texts that are out there um, or movies. And uh, two resources I'll mention, like on our website, actually, in every um, unit of review, we recommend classic stories that can teach these different topics. And that's all free for anyone. And then Common Sense uh, Media has a great database of uh, movies and TV shows that they've tagged with these different topics that, uh, be it a parent or an educator, can use to um, spark conversation around this. And, you know, there's so much that we can learn from narratives. And I think that's a great way that can make it really accessible without it seeming like some formal lesson for any parent to learn the skill and to teach these skills in their home. You guys have careers in, in a screenplay or writing screenplays after this, for sure. <laughs> um, you seem to have an art for storytelling, and it's amazing what you've built. Where do you want to point listeners to for more information on Pika Pack and any more information about you, Amy? Probably our website, so you can find more information about Pika Pack at pikapack.com. Um, as well as you can uh, tweet us on, on Twitter at, at PikaPack. Personally, I'm at Amy Shaw, D-O-T-C-A, on Twitter and love to engage with people, um, message us. If you're a school leader, we're always looking to connect and learn from you. I also make my calendar available. Um, it's just amyshaw.youcanbook.me. Um, and always looking to kind of learn from folks and innovators and how we can continue to impact more and more children. It's amazing what you're doing, and congratulations. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on your show. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register, or incorporate your business, or even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co. That's O-W-N-R.co. Use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us, so if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric House Records. And 
always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. One, two,